Uh, last week, uh, me and Caroline watched the film Yesterday. Don't know if anyone's seen the film Yesterday. It's a very good film. I can highly recommend it if you like Richard Curtis rom-coms. It's great. Um, it imagines a world where no one knows who the Beatles were except for one man. And if you're on this call and you don't know who the Beatles are, then shame on you. Uh, and you can use Google and you'll find out who they are. Uh, but this man, he doesn't know who the Beatles are and he passes off their music as his own and does very, very well out of it. Uh, he's gutted that the world will never hear Let It Be or Yellow Submarine, how they'll never hear the wonderful music written uh, by those four men from Liverpool. He imagines it as a world with a little bit less love, a little bit less joy. Now, I want you to imagine a world without the book of Leviticus. You may be going few. Um, would you miss it? Do you think you'd miss it? Well, remember right at the start, you may not remember, we looked at this quote from Paul Tripp. Uh, and this is what he said about Leviticus. He said, there are a few more hopeful books in all of scripture than Leviticus. Leviticus tells you there is hope for me in my darkest, dumbest, stupidest, most rebellious moment. There's hope for me because God has made a way for sinners to know him and be accepted by him. I hope we've seen that in the last four weeks. I hope it's uh, done for you what it's done for me and helped you understand Jesus more deeply, his sacrificial work of atonement. I hope it's caused you to worship God deeply as we've been pointed towards Jesus, marveled afresh of a fact uh, that we worship a holy awe-inducing God of all the universe, and he's made it possible for us to be in a relationship with him. Now, as we read Leviticus, 20, Leviticus 19, sorry, just then, thank you, Josh, um, and we come to the second half of Leviticus in one hit, in one sermon here, after the high of the day of atonement, that's where we left it, you may have felt a bit deflated as you read all these lists of laws, various laws, as the NIV helpfully summarizes them, because it all seems a little bit like legalese. It instructs you uh, how or how not to trim your beard, uh, which Tom Beaumont we're very happy about. Uh, it'll tell you um, who to marry. Uh, it'll tell you what clothes you can wear. There's all sorts of random seemingly laws in here. Well, the back end of Leviticus, and I'd encourage you to maybe read it, read the whole way through 18 to 27. It shows us how we are called now to live in response to God's work. We've seen his work. We've seen how an unholy people can live amongst a holy God. And now we see how that people are meant to live. It's really important that this comes um, 18 chapters in. It's really important that we've seen, firstly, all that God has done to make this relationship possible, all of his work there. We've seen how it was all fulfilled in Jesus for us now, how we've been forgiven and how in God's eyes, through our union with Christ, we have been declared holy. And it's in that context of what God has done that we get these instructions about how to live as God's people. Remember, we said the book of Leviticus is written um, not to us. It's written to the Israelites by then, but it's written for us. It helps us see more of what God is like. It helps us see more of his law. And so we will learn great things here. Some of these laws will apply to us today. Some of them won't. And we'll explain why in a minute. But fundamentally, the first thing we do is we see this call right at the start. Verse two, if you've got your Bibles with you, and it says, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. For the Israelites, for God's chosen people, this was key. Being holy just means to be, be separate, distinct, set apart, a, a, an otherness there. God's people were called to be just that, like God, set apart, holy, 
separate from the practices of the pagan nations around them. Some of the laws we'll see are specifically to do with that, distinct in how they acted. They were called to be like the God they worshipped, be holy as I am holy. So, so as they did that, as they were holy, they would show off the magnificence of God to those who looked in on them. And that call has not changed for us now. For every Christian is called to live out an identity that is, is distinct, set apart from the world, that is holy. In Peter's first letter, uh, in 1 Peter, he directly quotes Leviticus 19. He says, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Elsewhere, we see it clearly said in Ephesians that we, as followers of Jesus now, have been saved in order to be holy. Now, what's clear and what we need to remember again, as we've seen in the opening chapters of Leviticus all the way through, is that on that last day at judgment, which will come for all, whether you trust in Christ or not now, we will be declared not guilty if we trust in Jesus. We won't be declared not guilty because our good works were good enough. We won't be declared it because we were holy. We kept all of this to a T because we can't. I think all of us will recognize that as we looked at this. But God will look for evidence that our, our confession to him, our, our declaring of him as Lord was not fake and phony. It's in that sense we're commanded to be holy. We must be. If you look to the book of James with us about 12 months ago, I think, or maybe, no, maybe less than that, um, we saw that. Faith without deeds is dead. Both in the Old and the New Testament, God's people are called to be holy. In Leviticus, it's be holy as I am holy. And in Matthew, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And whilst, of course, we will get this wrong, the bar is high, we'll not be as holy as we're called to be. We have now been given the Holy Spirit in order to help us grow in holiness. And in that sense, these calls to be holy are realistic. They're wholly realistic and ones for us to listen to as we understand these laws here at the back end of Leviticus. So let's dive into chapter 19 as we look at what it looks like to be holy here. And the first thing we need to do is just think a little bit about how we, we handle some of these laws. As we said, some of them you'd go, do not lie, do not steal. Yep, fine, get that, understand that. I've seen that in the New Testament. Some you'll go, um, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. I'm pretty sure this jumper isn't one type of material. Uh, I'm pretty sure most of you be wearing polyester, things like that, maybe. Um, what, what do we do with that? How do we deal with those? So firstly, let me uh, preach to you about how magnificent the West Wing is. Uh, the West Wing is one of the greatest TV shows ever made. Um, if you disagree with me, you're wrong uh, and you need to watch it. Um, it's on all four. It's wonderful television. It is magnificent. Uh, we're re-watching it now. It's well worth a tonic against what's going on in the States at the moment. Um, and in one episode, uh, the president, Jed Bartlett, he phones up a radio show, president sitting there in the middle, uh, as they debate different issues. Uh, and he says this, he's uh, talking to a Christian radio host. And he says, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I, I wanted to sell my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21. She's a Georgetown uh, graduate. She speaks fluent Italian, has always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? Uh, while thinking about that, can I ask you another question? My chief of staff, Leo, he insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? Or, or is it okay that I just call the police? And, and here's one that's really important because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. 
Leviticus 11, 17. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Does the, the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? Maybe you felt the same as Jeb Bartlett as you looked at those laws. Some people might read these laws and like Bartlett say, you Christians just pick and choose which laws you like. Love, great, but what about these ones? You'll take the ones you love, but ignore the ones which are inconvenient and you don't understand. I wanna say it's not correct though. There are clear reasons why some of these laws in these chapters apply now and why some don't. Firstly, uh, as we say, a couple of things as we look at these. Firstly, uh, in law, often principles are taught using specific examples relevant to a culture. In law, principles are taught using specific examples relevant to a culture. So um, let's go to the New Testament. Uh, 1 Thessalonians sees the Lord command through Paul that the Christians there would greet each other with a holy kiss. You may have read that before. Um, I lived in Egypt for a time, and that is how men greet each other, a kiss on each cheek. Um, I first felt thoroughly accepted into the church when they began to do this to me and not treat me as the odd foreigner who initially found it bizarre and awkward, which it is a little bit. But to the Thessalonians, the, the point, the principle was clear. They were to show brotherly love to one another. To those in that culture where uh, brotherly love is not shown in that way, Britain, do not show it through a kiss on each cheek, um, that law may seem bizarre, but the principle is still there. We can read it as the principle. There was laws in Exodus around making sure in your flat roofed house, you built a, a parapet around it. That was because in the Middle East, many people sleep on roofs. And so it was a command to love your neighbor and to not kill them, was to make sure there's a parapet around the edge. So if they rolled over in their sleep, they didn't fall to their impending death below. Now, that doesn't mean if you're building a house today, whether it's flat roofed or not, you need to put a parapet around it. What it does mean is that we are called to love our neighbor and make sure we have good, safe building practices to not kill them. So you can see how the principles are at play here sometimes and specific examples were given relevant to that culture. And that's with the mixed material and clothing in Leviticus. It seems to be according to the commentators to do with people uh, potentially usurping the authority of the priests. Um, priestly garments, some of them were commanded to be made from two types of material as, a, as an act of luxury to represent themselves before God. And so non-priestly Israelites were forbidden from priestly duties. And so it seems they were prevented from wearing two types of material to stop them even being tempted to go in that way of, of wanting to be a priest, trying to be like a priest and they can't be. So as we apply that principle now, we'd go whilst leaders of churches now are not distinguished by special clothes. You can see that visibly now, uh, meaning Christians can wear mixed fabrics today. There's still a principle of recognizing the special role given to the church's leaders and supporting, submitting to them. So in law, principles are often taught using specific examples relevant to the culture. The second thing which is really important is we need to look at how the New Testament applies these principles. Right, so as we saw, as we were looking at, we were looking at how law uh, works, how we look at these laws, uh, how Jesus himself is very clear that we uh, can't just ignore the Old Testament law and ditch it. I'm sorry, I'm looking off my screen to my other screen. Um, and we saw how he fulfills it himself through his perfect sacrifice, how his high priestly work now is done, it's complete, it's once and for all finished. And so we are not going out to buy bulls ourselves. We're not suddenly gonna go out and sacrifice a bull tomorrow. 
uh, the food laws. Jesus deals with them himself. We looked at food, what's clean, what's unclean. He says clearly these laws are not something which we are bound to now, that they were for the distinct Jewish cultural national people, those laws, to help them be wholly distinct from the nations around them. And now God's people are not an ethnic nation. Those food laws do not stand. It doesn't mean the principles, the values behind them are not applicable. For the food laws, they reminded the people of their holiness, their distinctness, their otherness. And so we see elsewhere, we're called to be holy as God is holy and be a different people. So those are two principles just to have in hand as we then look specifically at these laws in chapter 19. And the first thing maybe which struck you as you looked at these laws, as I said, the NIV, if you've got it, calls it various laws, uh, which is a wonderful title. But they show us uh, the breadth of what they deal with. We see it talks about what to eat, what to wear, how to treat others, what to do with our time. It talks about all of life. How a holy people live in response to a holy God relates to everything we do. God cares about every aspect of our lives, every single aspect. And then you may have thought it seems like there's no order to these laws. And in, in some ways, there isn't massively but we can find five key categories we'll look at in a minute but we see right at the start we see an introduction and a conclusion which helps us verse two the introduction it says be holy because i the lord your god am holy and then the final verse gives us our conclusion keep all my decrees and all my laws and follow them i am the lord shows us that the holiness spoken about at the start is seen in these decrees and in these laws then did you notice there's loads of re repetition? Josh did it really well. I am the Lord your God, and I am the Lord. They're both said seven times each, important biblical number. A reminder for those listening uh, that they were listening to the covenant God. They're listening to Yahweh. You, you'll see the word Lord in your Bible. If you've got it, it will be capitalized. It indicates that's the specific name they're speaking of. This is the one who's given them the Lord's. The Lord's. Then right at the heart of the passage, verse 18, you may recognize it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In Galatians, Paul says that verse sums up all of the law. James calls it the royal law. Jesus himself, uh, seemingly his favorite verse, he quotes it more than any other verse. Love your neighbor as yourself. So um, before we look specifically at the laws, why should we listen to these laws? What is the motivation given for the people to follow these laws? Well, we've seen it. Be holy because I, the Lord, your God, um, holy. Whenever a new coach comes into a hockey club I've been at, you quickly want to find out their track record. You want to find out their CV first. You want to see if they're worth listening to. Why should we listen to these instructions? Maybe it's something as well we've all found um, during the pandemic with the restrictions. We want to understand the motivation before we follow it, don't we? Will these restrictions actually help? Um, who's saying them? Have they got a, the right background? Have they got the right authority? Well, we see here we're called to look at these rules, look at these laws and these commands because of who God is, and because we know they are good. Each of these laws will show us something of what God is like. And as his children, we are to be a people longing to be more like him. 1 Peter, again, as he's talking about holiness, he says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Be holy because I am holy. As obedient children, this passage, these chapters in Leviticus will point to truths about God and what he is like and the call for us to delight in them. 
And that is just the purpose of the law. You may wonder what on earth is the point of the law. Well, it explains to us how we are to imitate God, how we are to be like him, how we are to imitate the one so utterly worthy of imitation, the only one truly worth imitating and following. These laws weren't given to be uh, burdensome. Um, they weren't given um, to slow us down. They were given uh, to help us run the race of life to completion. So they're worth looking at. We follow these laws because of who God is and who he's calling us to be. They show us what it's like to be holy. The only way to have life in all its fullness. So let's look at the specifics of what these laws are then. Uh, I'm indebted to Pete Wilkinson, some of you know him, St. Ebbs, who when I heard him a while ago preach on Leviticus, he summed this passage up a little bit like the five love languages. I wonder if you've heard of the five love languages. Um, let me test myself uh, whether I know what they are. Time, uh, gifts touch words of affirmation and i'm gonna say acts of service i think i'm right on that one um and experts say it's a book it was written and it's a, a book to help you know other people's love languages whether you're in a relationship or whether in friendships you know how best to love those around you um, i'm not even going to pretend uh, to guess which one it is for caroline um but here in chapter 20 we get five different ways of loving our neighbor as ourselves and Unlike those five languages where it argues you generally have one each and um, you try and work it out and then that helps. Uh, here we're called to master all of these if we are to truly love as God wants and be holy as he is holy. So the five love languages here, the first one we see is devotion to God. Devotion to God. And it's clear here that our love for others, love your neighbor yourself, right at the heart of this passage, our love for others comes out of an overflow of our love for God and here we see it's important that we honor God rightly um, it's important that we do that we see the emphasis right at the start here about the Sabbath verses three and four um, later in Leviticus there's loads of instructions about the holy festivals about the right respect of the Sabbath uh, and time is one of the love languages and it is here you can't have a relationship without time our devotion to God looks like uh, committed time with him with his people then verses five to eight, we saw the fellowship offering mentioned again. And uh, commentators seem to think specifically that one was chosen because it's the easiest one, the easiest uh, of the offerings where you might forget about God. Do you remember it was the third offering we looked at our first week, the fellowship offering? It was I was blown away by the magnificence of it because it's the one where you had to eat and share with those around you. You had to um, have a whole bowl. Uh, you sacrifice some of it, but then the rest of it you share with those around you in the day. And so you can see why it'd be easy to forget God as you feasted together as family and friends. So what might the principle for us look like there as we look at that? Well, at Town Church, it could be that you just come to church for the pre-pandemic times, for the, the food, for the, the friendships, just to see people, but not for the hearing of God's word and the worship of him together. You may go, I'll only go to church when that person's doing refreshments or if I know that that family's going to be there then verses 23 and 25 we see this this odd at first glance passage around planting fruit trees and it seems to be uh, what it says here is that on the fourth year that's when you get a decent crop when you planted a fruit tree living next to an orchard I can see that I'm really looking forward to that next year we've had three years next year um, it sounds like that is when uh, things would be great and so uh, it could be tempting couldn't it as they 
Israelites read this to think, we'll give the third year to the Lord. We'll give, the, we'll, give, we'll give the third crop. It's a decent crop. It's not the best crop. We'll give that to the Lord, but we'll save the four for ourselves, other bumper crop for ourselves. And here, remember what we said about laws being principles with specific examples. The call here is to honor God rightly, challenging to not give God as little as we can get away with, but rather to honor him properly in our time, in our giving of money. As I reminded just now of how we try to give as a church. Then, Verses 26 to 29, you get these calls to turn away from idols. Do not eat any meat with blood still in it. Do not practice divination or seek omens. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Do not cut your bodies, tattoos. You get these things about mediums and spiritists as well. And it seems like the reason, for example, tattoos is mentioned here is that they were culturally associated with mourning rituals and ancestor worship of the pagan nations around Israel. So that is why they were prohibited. They're prohibited because the people are called to be distinct and holy from the pagan nations around them. Now, in the West today, those practices are not the same, and they're not having sideburns or having tattoos is not seen in the same way in our culture. And the New Testament itself doesn't reinforce those laws about tattoos, so we can safely say that they're fine. It's a case of the principle being the people are to be fully devoted to God, not clinging on to any pagan practices. You'd see it with tattoos, for example, in Japan. Those who are tattooed are, are said to be part of a, a special sort of mob-like gang. Uh, and so it's really controversial for anyone who's not in that gang to have tattoos. So they won't have it. So there's a cultural thing at play there. But the principle of being fully devoted to God. So that is the first of our love languages, devotion to God. And second, we then get respect for elders. Verse 3. If you noticed it, each of you must respect your mother and father. I am the Lord your God. It is a call to honour our parents. The Bible seems to give more weight to this command that Western culture sometimes does, maybe. And what this means, quite simply, is children are called to obey their parents. And when our parents get older, our duty of care is to care for them. That's what it looks like to be God's people, is those who care for their parents. It can be costly. It can be hard to do this. I know for some of you, you have parents who need more care and all of ours will continue to as we get older and the good and right thing to do the holy thing to do is to honor and care for them even when that's not convenient then verse 32 this respect is extended to to all of those who are elderly stand up in the presence of the aged show respect to the elderly and revere your god i am the lord our culture prizes youth and and vigor but god wants us to honor wisdom and experience of the elderly. It's part of how we love our neighbour. Oddly, this is one of the key debates, isn't it, when it comes to lockdowns and coronavirus, the care and shielding of the vulnerable, sometimes by condition, sometimes by age, has been a key part of the strategy. There's different ways of thinking about that, but we need to think about how we care and love and respect those who are older than us. So that's the challenge for us to be a church as we love our neighbour who respects our elders because that is what God is like. Our third love language then we see is generosity to the poor. Every read with me verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your fields or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. You may have recognised that from the story of Ruth and Boaz, when he allows her to glean from his field. The principle is that 
we all have responsibility to be generous to the poor and the needy. The, the gleaning law also seemingly reserved or preserved some of the dignity of those who were in need as they did something for their food, they collected it as it was left by the farmers. Remember these laws show us what God is like. God is, is generous, he's awesomely generous. So be holy as he is holy means to be generous like him. That was on top of their regular tithing. And the principle for those of us who don't have fields, which I think is most of us, is to not hold on to everything we can, but to deliberately plan to have something left over for those in need. This is what looks like to love our neighbor as ourselves. Some of you may be going, I, I live right on my means month to month, and especially now with COVID and furloughs, I, I have nothing left to give to be generous. Well, could it be a, a challenge here to have the principle of deliberately living within our means in order to be able to be generous to the poor? I have friends who had a gleanings account, they called it that, and they put into it each month in order to deliberately be spontaneously generous as needs arose on top of their regular giving. Could we do that maybe? As I said, it's something we've been grateful to be able to do as a church, not giving in the last nine months as needs have arisen. But it's a challenge for us as Christians here as well. So let us be generous to the poor because this is what God is like. Fourthly, fourth love language, being honest in everything. Be honest in everything. Verses 11 to 13, we see it say, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another, do not swear falsely, do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Verse 15, we see it talk about not perverting justice, don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism. The question there for us isn't how are we doing in those areas as we think about it? Maybe think about lying. You, you maybe guard against specific lying. Maybe maybe you've, you've got me you thinking, oh, I'm okay with that. I don't lie regularly. But what about exaggeration? Or little white lies or ascribing the wrong motives to people even though we can't see their hearts? A good test for us in our speech is to always ask, is it true? Is it fully true? Or am I just trying to get a reaction, make something favorable to me or gain attention? Then what about verse 16? Verse 16, do not go about spreading slander among your people. We have this as part of our culture documents and our work about speaking truthfully to people, not behind people's backs at all. It's so dangerous as well when it happens in a church context. It would Mark us out, wouldn't it, as well, if there's God's people living in the world in our workplaces with our friends. Imagine if we were utterly distinct in this area, that if as God's people, our holiness was demonstrating our speech about others, being wholly true and wholly kind. And holy to their faces in all things. Here's some helpful examples from um, John Bloom, who wrote this about slander. He says, sometimes we have a very real concern about someone that we share with someone who cannot benefit from or help with the concern. We do this because we simply want our listeners to think worse of a particular person. Or if we share a concern with an appropriate person, we can sometimes indulge our speculations or presumptions, mixing them almost imperceptibly with facts for our listeners, distorting the concern in order to sway an outcome in a direction we desire. The net effect of all forms of slander is to unjustly devalue another person's reputation. The best way, is to become people who are not safe to slander around, who will ask questions like, have you shared your concern with this person directly? It's a helpful challenge maybe for us. Well, I thought I'd pull out one of them, but this is what it looks like. To be honest in everything is what we're called to be here as God's people, because that is what God is like. Finally, we get to our final love language. 
So we've seen four ways there which we're called to reflect God and his holiness. And the final one there is kindness to everyone. Jesus was asked about this commandment right in the middle, love your neighbour as yourself. And someone came to him, they asked him, they said, who is my neighbour? And the answer was the parable of the Good Samaritan, reminding the people listening that it doesn't just include people who we like or people like us, but all people. Verses 33, 34 talks about foreigners residing amongst us in our land, not to ill treat them. Our neighbour includes those who aren't like us, those who don't fit in, those from different countries or backgrounds or races. Then we see verse 14, do not curse the death or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. A concern and a kindness to the vulnerable is key here. It's wonderful when we had uh, a good friend of ours, John King, in our church to see people go out of their way to care for him, to make sure there was no stumbling block in place for him to come to church. It's a key application of that. And this verse here, this, these verses, this passage in general, reminds us that God sees and cares about every individual he has made. That's what God is like. And it calls us out of a right fear of God to love our neighbour, to be holy as he is holy, kindness to everyone in everything we say and do. And not just outwardly, but verse 17 reminds us it's about what's inside as well. Verse 17, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour frankly, so you're not sharing their guilt. Inside and outside, kindness. This is what kindness looks like. It's what love looks like. These five love languages. What holiness looks like. I'm a call here, right at the start. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Let us be kind to all, because this is what God is like. So those are the five things we see here. There are five of things we see, and we could we could have dived into other passages of Leviticus, but I thought this helped sum up well a lot of the passages around as they gave different laws and different things. Be holy, for I am holy. This is how Leviticus comes to an end. There's laws on this. There's laws about the priests and their holy practices. There's laws on marriage surrounding this. There's laws about how people are spend, meant to spend their time in terms of festivals and Sabbaths. And then as it closes in Leviticus, there's a reminder of the covenant. That if the people obey these laws, God will continue to bless them. And if they don't, he will curse and disown them as his people. And for when we fail to be holy as God is holy, we're told in Leviticus 26 that there is forgiveness. There is reiterated again and again and again. Bob, you may have read this and it's a high bar. That's hard and it is. And we also then look ultimately to Jesus. who We looked at last time. He ultimately lived the life perfectly. He lived this out perfectly. He lived the law perfectly. He loved his neighbours himself perfectly. If you want to see holiness personified, you can only look fully at one person, and that is the Lord Jesus. And then as he left the earth, he said he was sending someone greater to help us live as God's holy people now, the Holy Spirit. We have, we have him now with us. So as we sit back and reflect on this, this wonderful book, I found it wonderful, you may not have, but I hope you have. We can see how God has made it possible for an unholy people to have fellowship with to live amongst him because ultimately that's the end goal fellowship friendship and and relationship with god has always been the goal of all of this that's why god instituted this the goal in the garden the goal in the garden of eden was uninterrupted fellowship with god the aim ever since has been restored relationships the end of the story is 
an eternal relationship. That's where it comes to right at the end in Revelation, we get reminded of the eternal relationship to come, the eternal fellowship with God. Leviticus 25 tells a bit about that as well. So friends, today remember this as we've looked at Leviticus, God has made it possible for us to know him now and forever. He's made it possible for us to commune with him, to have fellowship with him now and forever. And he's made it possible and shown us how to be holier than we can think, both now and ultimately forever. Let me pray and then we're going to sing. Father God, thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray you may help us as your people to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our mind and strength, and to love our neighbours as ourselves. We'll keep poking, poking and prodding areas where that is not the case now. Help us to keep becoming more like you. Thank you for the first 18 or 17 chapters of Leviticus, which show us that it is you who has done magnificent work to make it possible for us to be in relationship with you, that our holiness is not something which earns us a place in heaven, but a response to what you have done, Lord. And now help us to be a people who are holy. Help us by your spirit, by the work of your spirit in us to become more and more like you, Lord. Help us to worship you more deeply as we've marveled at your love for others today as well. Amen.